0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Denitz, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Karina Johnson. Professor Johnson is Professor of History at Pitzer College. She is the author of Cultural Hierarchy in 16th Century Europe, the Ottomans and Mexicans. Her current research includes co- cross-cultural encounters, proto memory, and the experience of violence in the 16th Century Habsburg Empire. Dr. Johnson is also co-editor of the book we are discussing today, Archaeologies of Confession, writing the German Reformation 1517 to 2017, along with other editors, David Lubke, Marjorie Elizabeth Plummer, and Jesse Sponholz. I'd like to add that it's the first time for me interviewing somebody with whom I'm personally acquainted. We met a few years ago at the home of Professor Thomas A. Brady Jr. in Berkeley, and that I benefited a lot from her book, Cultural Hierarchy, when I was writing my dissertation about the Ottoman menace, in the imaginations of 16th century European writers. And of course, Professor Brady has an important essay prominently placed in the edited volume we are discussing today. Professor Karina Johnson, welcome to New Books in History, and thank you for speaking with me this morning.
1: Thank you so much, Christoph, for that introduction um, and for mentioning Tom Brady's uh, presence in both our interactions and in this book, because... One of the things I found as co-editor was that a lot of the questions which were riveting and new for some of the authors who contributed essays and perhaps even some of my co-editors were not so because of my Berkeley training with Tom and with the other wonderful professors at UC Berkeley.
0: Uh, that's an excellent place to start. Uh, the, this book is the work of many important Reformation scholars, and, and you wrote the introduction, and your co-editors wrote the first chapter and the two penultimate ones, saving the last word and place of honor for uh, Professor Brady's really sweeping discussion of 500 years of German historiography. So there's a lot here, and yet it is completely cohesive. How did you manage it, and, and what was the big idea? <laughs>
1: Well, I have to give credit <laughs> to uh, my co-editors. It started out as a project of, of Jesse and David's. They were each well into their books that came out in 2016 and 2017, Hometown Religion on David Lubke's part and The Convent of Basel on Jesse Spanholtz's part. And they were coming up against this tension between – Um, What historians of the Reformation across several centuries had written, um, the kinds of editorial choices they had made in those magisterial 19th and early 20th century collections that we all depend on for Reformation history, you know, I and many others, for example, depend on the collected works of Martin Luther um, as sort of like the go-to place to get all of our Luther texts. and. They actually organized this as a panel series at the German Studies Association um, with an open call for papers, so no hierarchical gatekeeping or anything like that. So they just invited people to submit abstracts. Um, they selected a series of sort of panels and constructed them and then invited Beth and me to, or Marjorie Plummer and me to be uh, commenters, chairs of the panels and commenters, and out of that synergy came the decision to move forward with the project as a book project. Um, So it really um, came out of the struggles of two people very firmly situated in in sort of in Jesse's case, Reformation history, um, and David's case, German history, um, and move forward from there.
0: So I think maybe uh, in your your task as the um, r- as writing the introdu- introduction, you introduce the whole thing, and um, to make it cohesive, you s- you start not with a German, but on the other side of the planet, with uh, Michel Rolf Trouillot, a Haitian anthropologist, and his idea that the silences in history can say an awful lot. And you write in your introduction. Trujillo's theory of silence and historical writing emerged out of the school of Caribbean archipelagic history, which values historical divergence, distinctiveness, and diversity. Do you, do you think this uh, is a series of islands, um, the way we look at the uh, Reformation and maybe the entirety of the Holy Roman Empire? And how does, how does the archip, um, archipelagic view help, help you?
1: Well, I, th- I'm glad you picked up on that because that was the through line for me. And I have to uh, say that without it, it, it took me a long time to come to that, <laughs> to return to your earlier question about how did we make it come together? We did actually go through several iterations with the authors as we, we narrowed in on how we wanted to frame this in terms of silencing uh, pluralities. And um Trouillot and then also Glissant, who is the person who comes up with this, who is sort of most famously known for theorizing this sort of archipelagic notion of how to think about history, have both been, I think, really helpful in, in breaking us away or encouraging us away from very sort of pred- predictable historiographic trajectories and, you know, the Holy Roman empire and other Eastern central European states in the early modern period do in many ways um, also refuse to conform to those kinds of historiographies and uh, offer many different options out of a sort of a fertile field of, of cultural, religious, political, uh, sort of forces in the in the in eastern and Central Europe and so I really wanted and actually my purpose in writing this introduction and participating in this project was to sort of encourage people doing European history and the Reformation to realize that they were not outside of the history of the world and um, there isn't really now there is more historiography within europe studies that really asks people to feel comfortable with that notion. But when we were first conceiving of this idea, there wasn't a lot out there. And so going to TRIO seemed to be the the easiest way to do this. You know, TRIO has become quite fashionable, I think, in the last four four or five years, um, as people are more and more interested in thinking about... um, a suite of solutions, you know, trios interested in different kinds of silences, the silence of the archive, the silence of the historian, the ways in which people are the different sizes and shapes of silence. And so I think people are starting to become more and more interested in those approaches as the archival turn picks up steam. You know, now it's very common to hear people talk about, uh, the archive and its failings. All of which, though, I should should, should, should flag um, as pointing out that it's not that Central European historians didn't understand that. You know, I don't know about you and your training um, at Berkeley, but certainly one of the first things I learned from Tom was to read all those essays on how archives are constructed or the archives I was going to go work in, which were in Austria, were constructed. Those kinds of those, for a long time, were considered rather old fashioned um, and were ignored. But certainly, in my training at Berkeley, I was asked to learn about the nature of the archives' construction as well as what positivist evidence lay within it.
0: And that's. That's very important. Um, Maybe let me take a step back and ask you to explain to the non-specialist and the general listener what this Germany before there was a Germany uh, looked like to begin with. Because just the... I remember my very first day in one of Professor Brady's classes, he would show us a map and he'd say, here's the Holy Roman Empire. And, you know, anybody who Googled (laughs) Holy Roman Empire was like, that's, that's an empire. And it it looks more like somebody overturned a jigsaw puzzle onto a table, or I've heard it described as a patchwork quilt. I've heard it described as a mosaic. And in this book, uh, uh, Tom writes, "By, by Western European standards, it was a great ramshackle gathering of Pluralities upon plur, plur, pluralities; each county, city, or town having its own dialect, manners, customs, and in many cases a strong degree of self-governance, uh, and and so forth. Uh, is, and perhaps the Reformation is the one thread that tries to, uh, either through unity or opposition, give us give us a a sense of what was going on in this this territory.
1: Yeah, the Reformation sweeps over all of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and its nominally related states. And here I'm thinking of the Netherlands, Switzerland, which were theoretically part of the Holy Roman Empire, but clearly not in any meaningful way. Um, As as you just uh, laid out nicely with that quote, the Holy Roman Empire has many, many local and princely jurisdictions, and the emperor only has power legal power through his subject rulers so this indirect rule produces a beautiful diversity of approaches and creates many spaces for small states which ch- choose particular confessional first either um, some form of nascent Protestantism or chooses to remain Catholic in the early part of the 16th century and then eventually with the clear division of forms of Protestantism into two dominant strands, which we now think of as Lutheranism and Calvinism, uh, into th- three different choices that uh, of r- sort of religious structures and religious doctrines with which to, to sort of nurture the salvation of their subject souls we see a really beautiful range of approaches and options, but we also see constant tension, right? Because just on the other side of the border with that other little state nearby is another confession. Um, So if you're, if you're a, Protestant in a Catholic state, you can, and there are records of this, accounts of this. You can just go over to the town where there, where the church of your particular confession um, is established, and you can worship there. Maybe not every Sunday, but you can go there fairly regularly. And so there's always a lot. You can never ignore the other religions, and it's very often. And I think one of the Premises of this book, that the challenge of this plurality is something that people, um, particularly intellectuals and who are often the or reformers, who are the subjects of this this book, um, and many of the studies in this book, are trying to erase. They're trying to erase the sort of the influence or the possibilities that their state, their peoples will turn either towards a form of their own religion that they think is sadly mistaken or towards the other confessions. And, you know, I guess one of the things that I think I really learned to embrace, and I'm hoping that you might share this thought is that one of the beauties of Central Europe and East Central Europe is it really offers ideas of political formation In here I'm thinking about nation states that are quite different from Western Europe and the ways in which people are expected to negotiate and tolerate in the Holy Roman Empire are so much arguably richer and more capacious than they are in Western Europe. And I've been thinking about this um, more and more in light of uh, re- recent political events in Europe and in the United States in the last four years. And I think it's, you know, it's really a time for us to understand the possibilities of these these less centralized more localized confederacies or federations of which the Holy Roman Empire is often held up as a beautiful example Iberia and the kingdoms of Spain are also held up that way since they don't share a constitution or um the same legal governance until the 1640s arguably <laughs>
0: I I think that's very central and interesting to uh, to not only to thinking about history, but I mean, not only to the thesis of this book, but also to thinking about history, because um, that is that's exactly right. In the in the in the Middle Ages, nobody thought about a nation, and nobody you thought like, oh, well, I have to obey my local lord, that sort of thing. But who cares what flag is on the castle? And then by the twentieth century, it's so obvious that everybody every nation has a land, and every land has a nation, and so on. And somewhere in between, they they hammered this out. And uh, in Spain, we know about you know in the fifteenth century, and in England with the Hundred Years' War and so on. And um, I, Central Europe is so different, as you say. The the fact that there was a Poland and then there was not a Poland for one hundred twenty-three years uh, affects the way people think about it. And I can I sort of see from this this Holy Roman Empire to the unification of Germany things I did not appreciate before I opened this book, which is the desire to create a German the german nation and also the number of traumas they had all the way first through the 30 years war and the um and then through napoleon and it seems like that i wish, maybe i don't know if you feel like you can explain it to a, a generalist or a, or just a, a a listener about the kulturkampf that appears in essay after essay at the end of the 19th century this wish to make luther a german and germans lutherans and just an, a nation out of the pieces—it's—it's it's fascinating, um, and I, I guess the 20th century horrors erase it a bit. But how did how did that work? What how do you understand the mechanics of nation making in what we call Germany?
1: Well, I'm glad you focus on that because one of the wonderful surprises of this book was to discover exactly what points in time the authors considered pivots and which authors they you know of the Reformation that from, for example, the 18th century, they considered central in framing the questions that would shape Germany. And stepping back just a little bit, I I would say, because I was talking more about uh, the German (sighs) political structure, that of course, as the birthplace of Martin Luther, the Germanies as as um, people at Berkeley like to say it, rather than the Germany singular, Germany's plural, the Germanys have always really felt a particular claim on the Reformation and a particular understanding of their own genealogical tradition from the Reformation. Of course, what that means is very different, but um, the Kulturkampf, which is not my area of specialty, um, I'm really not a 19th century historian, but one of the nice things that this essay a series of essays in this book highlight is the way in which the move for German unification under the Prussian uh, sort of under Prussian leadership is really fundamentally about becoming a, society that only has one confession, that only is Lutheran because at this point, or Protestant, because at this point they've created this sort of merged Calvinist and Lutheran form of Protestantism. And of course, this creates incredible tensions uh, with the Catholic states, the German-speaking Catholic states to the south tensions that are overcome interestingly enough in relation to modern germany and the in Bavar- the incorporation of bavaria but certainly have meant the exclusion of what was in some ways uh, a a crucial part of the german speaking world earlier austria um, and the kulturkampf is essentially a struggle by the prussian state to Erase Catholicism and the power of Catholicism in some across its territories. In some ways, it's importantly not so dissimilar from many state uh, church struggles. Right, so in many parts of Europe, we see a point in time where the state tries to gain control over important uh, functions of the church, particularly uh, the matters having to do with funding or the appointment of religious officials, um, ecclesiastical officials, and in some places, all clergy. It also, importantly, and here I would defer to a 19th century uh, scholar, it it occurs right around the same time or in conjunction with, as Tom Brady argues, with uh, the papacy in Rome's assertions of papal power and infallibility as as the papacy becomes a much more hierarchical and rigid uh, and arguably religiously conservative institution. So I think those are the force fields that create an incredible inability on the part of Prussia to tolerate an on- the ongoing existence of Catholicism in its territories, but perhaps m- Equally interestingly is their efforts to forge this less confessionally distinct Calvinism and Lutheranism, <clears throat> which several of the um, authors in the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the edited volume speak to.
0: And it's very interesting that no matter how many pres- pressures and opportunities there are to do this, people continue believing what, what they believe the,
1: um. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, and this goes back to your point about the erasing of the twenty. You know, the the way in which the incredibly tragic events of the twentieth century erased a lot of this history. You know, for a long time, and certainly in the nineteen nineties, when I was doing my graduate studies, it was very unpopular to think about religion in the nineteenth century in Germany. It was considered not a meaningful or important question. And it was really only the work of scholars like Margaret Anderson and James Sheehan that people were starting um, to sort of move away from that in the 90s and recognize that perhaps the most intense religious conflicts or among the most religiously conflictual centuries, the 19th century really stands alongside perhaps the 16th century in that way. And, and I think, you know, to be honest, that's one of the reasons that I myself worked on uh, the Habsburg Empire rather than Germany, um, as it some location in Germany as it exists today. I was really interested much more in the kinds of histories that weren't simply defined by the terrible tragedies of the 20th century, and that is a little bit easier when you're not having to struggle with the specter of Hitler. Uh,
0: yes. Uh, and uh, Hitler does sort of eclipse everything else. Uh, and I think when we add the first world war or for Germans, uh, Napoleon, but what I, I love about this book is that not only does it have the, the big um, history of ideas and intellectual history, but it also has a lot of social history. And so, even though there are burnings and martyrdoms and so on, there's also um, the town where uh, Christians helped Jews during a fire evacuate their, um, their area, or there's the examples of the biconfessional and tri confessional towns where um, Lutherans and Catholics and Calvinists shared a pew or shared sacraments. Um, so that's interesting too, isn't it? That um, we the big ideas uh, we talk about, but then people do what they do, or is that an o- oversimplification?
1: No, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think it's one of the things I love about All the authors in this volume that decided to focus on very fine grained cultural and social history studies. As you said earlier, people do what people want to do. And often, what people want to do is not be incredibly violent towards their neighbors and deny their neighbors' humanities, but rather to find ways to coexist with one another and even. support i mean i'm sort of hesitating on the word support there because of course they don't support their neighbors religious convictions but they do support their neighbors rights to live and exist and i think so for example in as you pointed out in dean bell's essay we see a very it's it's not an easy it's not a fully accepting relationship between christians and jews In Frankfurt, but we see the ability of both groups to work with each other in a time of crisis, um, which I'm sure we're all thinking about times of crisis right now, and thinking about what what is the capacity of a of a community? What is the capacity of society? And it is encouraging. And I think one of the things that this this super fine grained analysis helps us see is the way in which people end up allowing for forms of toleration, and in this case, the survival of evidence of religious difference, um, even when they don't really. Intend it. Right? <laughs> it's it's there. They don't they don't focus on rooting it out, and it just it it stays there uncontrollably. And the, for example, in Shunka's piece, one of the things I think is really delightful about it is the way in which um, the archive, which is created to support a particular idea of Protestantism, contains so many riches in it that the archival creator didn't really intend, which then become the agents of recuperating a form of plurality that had been lost um, or had, had the the goal had been to write out that form of plurality. And I think and that that's that, the, essay, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say that's the essay where uh, Shunka argues that, Protestantism is distinctly German and opponents have to therefore be foreign or um, what could you, oh, could you is, say a little this, bit more about it?
1: This is Cyprian this is an essay on Ernst Solomon Cyprian um, and you know this is actually going back into what's more conventionally understood as a sort of more intellectual history of religion um, and history writing but that essay uh, you know he's he's working as a polemicist and one of the reasons I ended up in my introduction thinking about the importance of sacred history and and church history is so it's it's often been separated aside And and set aside from the kinds of histories we learn in textbooks and that our children learn in school because it's considered so charged with uh, particular agendas. But as we know, as professional historians, all history comes with its own particular agenda. And in this case, Cyprian works hard to create um, a series of texts that argue for a very particular form of Protestantism. And, and then he creates this amazing archive, which exists today. Um, Cyprian, Ernst Solomon (laughs) Cyprian was a Lutheran plumicist working on behalf of the Dukes of Saxony and their particular agendas, both religious agendas, but also agendas for the sort of moral and political primacy of their state.
0: I think, um, one of the narratives that goes through all the essays is how Luther went from being just a guy, just an individual Augustinian friar who objected uh, passionately and on principle to this uh, symbolic figure instantly. And there's uh, one uh, one of your colleagues r- writes about how there was the burning of a papal bull that was not a, was not a big deal today it happened, but the next day when it went, was written down, it was uh, Luther, you know, um, Luther burning it rather than um, I, I forgot if it was Melanchthon or someone else. And the art of the cover art is, is of your book is Luther doing that. And um, uh, the the question is how Luther went from, um, f- from a, um, a religious thinker to this um, German symbol that uh, Schoenke uh, p- picks up on. But even like every kind of German Sort of claims Luther down to the East German Marxists who who wanted to include him in in their uh, history. You know uh, how he he becomes this figure. Is he bigger than himself, or um, how did I, I? I'm saying this because of your 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 remark about the agendas of, of histories. Is what's the what is it?
1: <laughs> well, I do think that Natalie Kuntsel. Article beautifully illustrates the way in which Luther from very on early on is a master of media representation, right? <laughs> he within the 24 hours reshapes this event so that it cre- has greater resonance and pr- either coincidentally or intentionally repositions himself at the center of events. I think Luther scholars have very Strong, deeply emotional commitments to which, whether or not Luther was a was an operator or a um, maybe an operator who was operating out of deep religious—I mean, I think nobody d- denies that he had deep religious convictions. But to what extent he intentionally shaped himself to be the center of the movement, and to what extent he became that through a variety of circumstances. Is is a matter of hot debate. Every confession yes. that arises out of the Reformation, with the possible exception of some of the spiritualist movements, seizes upon the notion of a really quite divinely inspired leader, right? Calvin and Luther are not considered themselves prophets in the way that, say, Muhammad is, but they are considered, there, there, there seems to be a need to have a sort of a central figure, in Luther's case, a central figure of genius is the way he's rewritten in the 19th century. And I, and I think uh, w- one of the things that editing this volume gives me a very strong appreci- appreciation for is the way in which, commemorations become so important for rewriting um, collective memory, so that every time we have a national holiday, we're recording on Martin Luther King Day, we're we're engaging in an act of both respect and memory, but recommitment to that memory and what it means to appreciate and value the contributions of a particular leader. In our case, Martin Luther King Jr. In Martin Luther's case, you know Martin Luther as the father of a particular form of the Reformation, and I think this has been—and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction. This has been a this is an uneasy matter. Both to what extent should we lionize an individual? Um, a lot of the historiography of the Reformation that was produced in the 1960s and the 1970s was really focusing on the social movements that allowed the writings of Martin Luther to flourish and become popular and and really sort of highlighting the way in which he and actually other reformers other people writing within the uh, sort of the call to reform Christianity were touching on themes that were tremendously important to other people this at the heart of the East German, interest in Martin Luther is also this awareness of the way in which Luther is part of a broader movement, or early Luther, up to 1524, 1525, and what's sometimes called the Peasants' Revolution, um, certainly by East Germans was called the Peasants' Revolution, but is often more called now the Common Man or the Common People's Revolution, really is able to inspire people to engage in the reformation and commit to this religious reformation because they're touching on themes that really matter to people um, beyond high theological concepts. And so in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a huge effort to sort of flesh out people's awareness of religion and the, the sort of social basis of religion. And that sort of pushed aside this need to commemorate Luther as this central heroic figure because of the tensions in what it is to produce a collective memory um, given the ways in which Luther had been manipulated uh, in anti-Semitic and pro-German ways in in the previous decades. And so I think one of the interesting things about French historiography versus German historiography is the the deep-seated wariness of German scholars um, when talking about collective memory to be really thoughtful about what what it means to talk about collective memory given that they have to engage in Germany with reckoning with um, Hitler. It all comes back to Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it really yeah. does in some ways. Um, you know, if you read the... You know, to what extent is collective memory malleable? To what extent do we refashion it? To the, these are sort of obvious questions now and in an era of online social media for us. But when media was a little bit slower moving a couple decades ago, it 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 was a issue of tremendous concern. I and mean, we don't really talk about um, the public sphere head on, or none of the authors really take on Habermas head on. But you know. Haberm- the Habermasian public sphere is circulating um, in the background, of course, of all scholarship having to do with uh, Europe after, you know, 1700, yeah. 1600.
0: No, and I, I think I, I certainly take your point that all um, symbols, especially ones that have a lot of currency, are going to be twisted by everybody for their own purposes. Uh, and I think we see this when we, whenever there's some mob of um, sort of Nazi sympathizers running amok in the United States, they're going to have flags with crosses on them without ever asking, like, what, what, what how is this a Christian philosophy? They're not going to ask that. And um, I think Hitler was the, was the great example of having – gone too far and had to um, have a good shakeup for a country like, well, that's actually absolutely the opposite of what anybody wanted to happen. Um, But if you go back to the First World War, there's this figure that uh, Professor Brady writes about, um, Max Lentz, who sort of imagined Luther as a German war god, uh, sort of Christ-like stand-in, part man, part God, with us but not of us, um, with this desire to have a German Christian God who would oppose the English Christian God, who would oppose the French Christian God, and all these uh, extravagant and over-the-top uses of a guy like Luther, who was, you know, and I think to the to the suffering of those German peasants, he was not interested in politics. He was interested in, in theology, or maybe that's false. Maybe you can't be interested in theology without politics, but he certainly was not willing to interpret Christian freedom as something for, for, poor bowers to oppose their feudal lords he he sided against them um so how how he becomes a marxist figure in in east germany is a, is weird to me
1: <laughs> well <laughs> yes i mean it's I, mean, I often think of it as sort of a, a story of promise and betrayal uh right in the sort of east german formulation in and you know this terrible tragedy in which he can't fulfill the early potential of his theological arguments and and instantiate them in the political and social realms
0: yeah. Oh, and uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is you 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 observed that we're talking on Martin Luther King Day, and uh, we we emailed an article. Uh, I emailed you an article about how Michael King went to Germany and was so touched by Martin Luther's example that he renamed himself Martin Luther Senior, and his son Michael Junior, Martin Luther King Junior. Um, when I talk about the Reformation uh, to not only undergraduates, but I also have high school kids. Like they don't know who Martin Luther is, but they know who Martin Luther King is, and that's a symbol that um, goes. I mean, of course, is from the civil rights movement and the uh, philosophy of nonviolent uh, resistance. But he has sort of become this lion, lion in twentieth century uh, history that could, every American child from my from my youngest, who is six. To you know, the undergraduate you meet—they all know Martin Luther King, but they're not going to know a lot of other figures from the civil rights movement. Um, so, uh, how how did he become, you know, who, who he is? And, and is and is Martin Luther kind of like that for Germans?
1: Well, <laughs> I, that's a twentieth-century question. I will say that I was totally charmed when you sent me that article because, of course, Michael Luther senior makes this decision at the in the midst of a Baptist conference in which Nazism is rejected right and the the ideologies of uh, sort of racial inequality that are fundamental to Nazi ideology are rejected and and I was really thinking after that about this strand of the Reformation which, used to be called the Anabaptist strand and now often is called the spiritual strand in which um, hierarchy is rejected and full spiritual equality is embraced. And however much those strands of religiosity have morphed in the United States, they still undergird really important confessions and churches in the United States, including, I think everybody would agree, what's often considered the black Baptist church. And so it's entirely apt and thoughtful, I think, that Michael Luther Sr. made this decision in the face of a tremendously conflictual and hostile ideology that sought to erase Christian equality. Whether Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. serve the same purpose, I don't know. Because, of course, Martin Luther has a much more state-supported role, at least in the in Saxony, than Martin Luther King Jr. did. And I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see maybe 400 years from now whether they really function the same. I mean... For me, the interesting thing about Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy is the new wave of documentaries and films and and essays, which ask us to to sort of remember the the collectivity of the civil rights movement. Um, I'm thinking here, um, particularly of the. The biography that came out recently of um, James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro, which I've taught to students and they find to be a really powerful indictment of sort of long standing trends of white supremacy. And James Baldwin is not somebody that they were told to uh, be reverential towards, but his words are so resonant. And then I think in the a couple decades ago, it was Malcolm X, right? Who really was resonating with people. And I think, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. represents a version of civil rights activism and, 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 leadership that is very comfortable for many people in the United States. And the interesting question will be, how do we move forward with a more collective understanding?
0: I, I, I take your point and I also agree that we'll have to wait a few centuries to, <laughs> to see it, <laughs> to see it in relief. Uh, um, at another figure uh, Sort of these, the discussion of these jubilees and anniversaries uh, reminds me, and and I, I think you you will speak with great authority here as a, um, you know, early modern Spain scholar of Columbus, who was such a hero in eighteen ninety two, and then a villain in nineteen ninety two, and you know, here in in Berkeley, we don't have Columbus Day; we have Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, and it just the question is, who is this a? Hero four is this figure, somebody who unites a subsection of the society or everybody, including the, you know, the winners and losers of ancient battles. Um, I wonder if Luther can be that for every, everybody. And I realize that this is a book about Germany. It's not about Protestantism in the world, um, which I didn't realize until halfway through our conversation that you're, you're really interested in early modern Germany, which really helps us narrow the focus and, and understand it more concretely about how, um, you know this figure who predates and survives all of the um, versions of Germany that we have seen, the good, the bad and the ugly uh, is, is still here and is now sort of re-seen as not a nationalist figure, but sort of a more of a pan-European um, figure how, how do you think? How do you think of? I don't well, the, know there's a question
1: in there. The Columbus Day and the Christopher Columbus example is a really helpful one because, and you know, here I think we probably are both thinking as historians. It's fine for for there to be, and appropriate for there to be new assessments of historical figures and their contributions, both uh, good, bad, and ugly, as you described it. And I think whatever, you know, jubilees and anniversaries give us the opportunity to have a focused conversation about the legacies and consequences of that particular figure or those particular events. I mean, I think one of the things, and I was circling around this in my previous uh, remarks, one of the things that both of the, that those kinds of commemorations do is focus on a single man as the heroic uh, figure without whom the movement couldn't exist, and that's sort of a separate question of whether or not religious movements, uh, political movements, should be pinned on one particular person or should be uh, the understood as the a collectivity's hard, you know, long term work. But I do think that. It's important for us to never remain completely settled over time about what what are the lessons of history, and because they do change as we learn to see different things, we learn to understand the consequences um, more fully. And I've you know I can imagine that the pendulum will swing back again for Luther. It is very striking that in twenty seventeen. Martin Luther was celebrated as this pan European um, bolt of light that uh, wasn't even exclusive to Christianity. There were a series of events in Europe which focused on Luther, not just as a Christian figure, but as a a sort of more broadly, you know, figure that opened up the possibilities of religious worship. As you implied, this was this reflected a sense of scholars of the reformation that the world they live in is terribly secular this is something that both uh, catholic and protestant uh, theologians feel right now that that we're engage- we're they're confronting this tremendously secular world out there we'll see in 50 years what the what the problem is that we need Luther to we need to use Luther to think through, right? So we use Columbus we we use Luther to think through problems that we don't, you know, historical interpretive problems problems of res- consequences and outcomes and and you know, people often get well, my parents are scientists and they're often baffled by the idea <laughs> that that there needs to be more history of some of these uh, figures and some of these events, but hopefully what this book does is at, remind us that there's so much that got erased or buried or ignored and silenced that there's there's always more interpretive possibility for each of these figures. Columbus, maybe not so much anymore since he um, he was well studied in 1992, I think. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I think we've uh, there's I don't know how much more there is to say about him, but uh, but Luther especially now, as you say, it's a secular time. And I was uh, visiting my wife's family in Denmark some years ago, and I took my kids to church, and we were like a third of the congregation—just me and three kids. And uh, there are—I don't know if people in in Europe are still going to church. Uh, certainly, they are. They are in Poland, but I don't know if that is true uh, in in other places, and um, uh, and at the same time, it's an ecumenical time when I find very little difference between, you know my my Catholic principles and my neighbor's Protestant principles. I think we find ourselves in the same religious minority in a secular in a secular age. how 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 does such a uh, theological figure guide us going forward?
1: Well, I mean, I would say, the different types of Baptist churches, there's tremendous difference between the African-American Baptist church and the forms of evangelical white evangelical uh, churches that probably understand themselves at some point as having similar spiritual origins, but have very different messages today. I would hope that the, message of this book is not that we use Luther to guide us, but that we use, you know, to find a solution that is embedded necessarily in his theology, but that we understand that the history of the Reformation has included so many people. And so many projects and that there's a multiplicity, a multivalence of possibility within everything, including the Reformation. And that also history and historical, the archives, archivists, historians engage in through these projects of either erasure or recuperation, engage in real consequential argument you know political arguments in another way of th- stating that is that there are facts but what you do with them and facts are facts there are not alternative facts there are facts but what you do with those facts and and what meaning you give to those facts is what matters
0: I think that's a perfect last word and summary. And I, I realize that our hour is up, but are there other questions that I did not think of or, um, that anything else we should say about, about this lovely, lovely collection of essays?
1: Um, no, <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> each essay could, we could dwell on each essay for an hour. Um, I would say go read them. <laughs>
0: That's true. That's true. I, I, I will, uh, e- echo that. I uh, f- highly recommend such a, such a delightful and uh, very accessible to, um,
1: uh, newbie and to expert alike. Uh, I, I guess a, the one great. thing I would say that, sorry, not to, I didn't mean to cut over you. Um, the one thing that I would say is that one of the things I, I think I'm quite proud of and delighted by is that there's a, this volume has a series of authors who are German. So it's not just a North American conversation that we're engaged in. And this is something um, that the generation of scholars just before me, of which Tom Brady represents, um, this generation of scholars really worked hard to unprovincialize Reformation history and German history so that North Americans and Europeans spoke to each other and helped each other understand the extent to which their concerns were formed by their national circumstances in which to what extent their, their scholarship was not formed by their particular, you know, academic contexts. And I think that's something that I, I really value about this book, book because it helps us not just think about the reformation as a as in the way that north americans understand it but also is a conversation across the atlantic
0: professor johnson thank you so much for being part of the new books in oh, history thank Podcast.
1: you so much i enjoyed it very much